In my old church in Kings, I, I preached and I preached my heart out one Sunday. I did all I could to try and connect with the, with the people. I was right out there and I went for this response and this woman responded to my preach and she said, I never expected it to be your sermon. I never expected that. And I was like, okay. Yeah, so you just, as a preacher, you just try not to take it personally when no one remembers anything. Or, yeah, I suppose it's a bit like, it's a bit like parenting your children. You don't take it personally when they don't want to engage with you. You just trust that something you say in the end will make a difference. Okay. She said, get to the preach. Okay, so we're not getting it. Okay. Two weeks ago, we began a series on the Beatitudes. And uh, we were looking at how the Beatitudes, uh, those, those, if you like, statements that we read in, in Matthew 5 and in Luke 6, how they help to transform the Christian. And we began not by looking at the Beatitudes, we began by looking at the story that comes immediately after the Beatitudes, which is the story of, of being salt and light, that you're the salt of the earth. Jesus says to his disciples, you're the light of the world. And... Um, and we just talked around that and we talked about the fact that salt and light are what you become when you apply the Beatitudes to your life. When you apply these truths about blessed are those who mourn and all those things, when you apply those to your life, what you become is salt and light in the earth. You become the salt of the earth, you become the light of the world. We also just looked at the fact that <coughs> Jesus doesn't, doesn't just call himself the light of the world, he calls us the light of the world. And just think about that for a moment. Think about what that means when Jesus calls himself the light of the world and then apply that to yourself. Apply that to yourself if, you be a, a, if you're a Christian. And that we were going to walk through this trying to get to the point where God was be transforming our own lives as we began to recognise oh, yeah, what it means to be salt and to be light. And we're doing it because the bottom line is as Christians, I'm sure this is true of all of us in here if you are a Christian, is you want your life to be fruitful. You want it to be fruitful. Not just you want it to count for something because your life can count for something in a very unfruitful way, but you want it to be fruitful. You want, you want to, to produce the type of fruit that, that God would have you produce. You want to do that, I'm sure. Is that not true? Yeah, 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 was, oh, yeah, yeah I do. Sort of, yeah. But you do. Yeah, you wouldn't be here if you didn't. You wouldn't get up on a Sunday morning if simply because you thought it was a good idea. Uh, you would you'd get up on a Sunday morning partly because you're wanting your life to be fruitful for God. Yeah? And I, I use those words very deliberately. Fruitful for God, not just you want your life to count. Because your life can count in many, many ways, and a lot of those ways it will not be fruitful for God. Yeah? I, I don't particularly mind if life counts. I, I want it to be fruitful. Yeah? Now, actually, I'm finding fruitfulness is a lot harder. Yeah? Why not just stick to counting? Um, and so we're doing this series, um, uh, and, and, one of the, and there's a couple of things that I just need to say right at the beginning, because I think that these are consistent truths that will come throughout this series and um, I'm, I'm hoping that these will be points that we, we really, really get because if we get them, it will change things. 
It would change how you live. It would change how I live. And, and the first is this. We must understand the upside-down reality of the kingdom of God. We, we must get that. Because if we don't get that, we'll become very confused about some things. And let me just give you a really silly example. Um, years ago, um, I took my girls swimming. Yeah? I used to take them swimming every week. It wasn't that I could swim very well, because I couldn't. And in fact, I marvelled. I marvelled at people who could swim like, well, even five lengths. <laughs> I, marvelled. I thought, how do you do that? Because I swim one length, and I'm like dead. I'm like knackered. And I get to the other end, and it's almost like I've held my breath through the whole, the whole length. And this is when I'm trying to do the breaststroke, because I, I don't know how to do it. And so I'm absolutely dead at the end. I'm thinking, how, how, how do they do that? How do they just go up and down, up and down? Um, and I remember one, one occasion I'm swimming and I, I'm getting to the other end and my head's just above the water and, and Yasmin, who must have been about, I don't know, 12 at the time, she said, are you okay, Dad? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. Yeah? Because I didn't swim because I liked him. I, I actually swam because I wanted, I didn't want the girls to have any sort of uh, fear of water because Dad didn't like the water, they didn't like the water. So I used to go and dive, jump, not dive, I used to jump in. I couldn't dive, didn't know how to dive. And it didn't seem right to get your head in first. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would jump in, and, uh, and, but I, I struggled. And, and I struggled because I didn't understand how, how to swim properly. I didn't understand about breathing. My muscles were aching, I would do one length of breaststroke, and I would get three quarters of the way and occasionally I'd have to go to the side because I just didn't get it. I didn't get how you did it. So it was, it was really hard work and I'd see people go back, up and down, up and down. I wondered, I marveled. How do you do that? How do you do that? Because I didn't get it. I didn't get it. And, uh, the, the, and the same, I say that when I'm talking about the, the upside down reality because if somebody had shown me how to swim properly, what, what they, one of the things they would have said to me was, oh, Owen, you're doing the very opposite of what you should be doing. You're meant to allow the water to do more of the, the work. Really? Oh, I thought if I just do this. Yeah, they would, they would tell me probably you're doing the opposite of what you're meant to be doing if you're actually going to learn to swim properly. And um, I, I sometimes feel like that because we live in a world which is the complete opposite of how God wants us to live. And, and, you, and you can think to yourself, how can that be the case when God created the world? Why would the world be the opposite way of how he would want us to live? And the main reason for that, without going into all the detail, would be sin's the answer to that, why the world is the opposite way. Um, but the reality is that if you, if you just begin to carefully look into scripture, you'll realise, oh, God's asking for different things to the things we're asking for. Yeah? And if you don't get it, it means that when you read certain things, you're just going to think, oh, right, wow, that's in the Bible. I don't understand it, but I'll just move on. Yeah? And when we come to the Beatitudes, that's an example of what I've just said. Another example, just a really obvious example in the Old Testament, is when um, the prophet Samuel is looking to appoint a king for Israel. God has appointed Saul. Saul's let him down. So Saul's no longer going to be king. He's going to appoint someone else. And he says to Samuel, go to Jesse's sons and you'll find the one. Go there. You'll find the one. And so Samuel goes and Jesse gets all his sons and he, he parades them along. And the first son is called El Eliab. And uh, it says, Samuel says, surely, when he sees Eliab, he says, 
surely the Lord's anointed. Surely this is it. Yeah, because Eliab's tall and he's handsome or whatever it is. He's a big guy. Surely. And God says to him, so, so Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Really? When we appointed Saul, it was because he was head and shoulders above. No, don't consider his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. And then he tells him this little thing, which is a secret that we need to get. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Really? Well, how, what do you look at then? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so when we think about that, we, we can isolate that thought to, oh, okay, yeah, God looks on the heart, we look on the outward appearance. But actually, this is true in so many, so many different ways. It's not just true about that particular passage of scripture. And if you don't get the way God sees it, you just get confused. Because why would God say, blessed are the poor in spirit? Or as it says in Luke, blessed are the poor. That doesn't make sense to us. When I see poor people, I don't go, blessed are you. Blessed are you. I think when I've got all my stuff, blessed are me. Yeah, I've got six cars. The Lord has blessed me. Cars, houses, money. I think the Lord has blessed me. That's what I think. And yet he says, blessed are the poor. So I'm thinking, something's not right in how I'm viewing things if I find that confusing. I need to, I need to understand the upside down reality of how God views the world. Because if I don't get that, not only will I be like me swimming a length of breaststroke, I'll find it a lot of hard work and it won't make any sense to me. And I will marvel at the way people do it. I'm thinking, how does, how does he do that? Because when I get there, by the end, I'm, my arms are aching, I'm out of breath. And yet this guy glides up and down doing the same stroke as me. Guy, oh, it can't be for me. I'm not a swimmer. I can't do the swimming thing. I need to find something else. And that's how I will respond if I don't understand it. Because again, if I don't understand it, all I would do is I would just create God in my own image. Yeah? And the church, not just Beacon Church, but the church, Christians, we're in danger of living like that. We're in danger of living and looking at things purely on the outside. Oh, that, that's good. He's a nice guy. Look at him. He's great. Look at, look at what they're doing in there. Look at how many people. Look at this. Look at that. We're in danger of living like that and missing the way God sees it. And we must understand that when we look at the Beatitudes because otherwise they just confuse us. And you also must understand that when I speak today because otherwise what I might say at the end, you'll get deflated by. You'll think, oh, is he really saying that? If you don't get it, if you don't understand, God's reality is different to your reality. But his reality can be known. It's not like it's completely mysterious. It can be known because he's made it known through his word and he reveals it to us through his spirit. So it can be known, but it is a different reality to our reality. The other thing that we must understand when we look at the Beatitudes, and I talked about this a little bit on the first week, is that word blessed. That word blessed. We must understand it because there are two ways that you can view it. And, and you can, if you're not careful, you just view it wrong because you can think blessed 
Being blessed is something to do with your circumstances and something to do with your experience. It's very easy to think that. You can go through a good time and just feel you're blessed. I remember if you're into sport and, you know, you've you got, you got a player, you know, Luis Suarez, who's, who's gone on a bit of a, a goal run and he scored like 21 goals in 15 games and he's going through a bit of a purple patch and you can think, oh, he's blessed. Oh, wonderful. But actually, if you understand blessed like that to do with the circumstance or the experience, then you've missed what God means by blessed. And if you miss what God means by blessed, you'll never understand that you are blessed regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your situation or your experience. Because God doesn't do it on, those, on that basis. That word blessed, it comes from a Greek word, makarios. And it means to be blessed, to be happy, to be fortunate. And it describes the state of the relationship that you have with God. It describes how God sees you. So blessed are those that mourn. Why? Why does God say blessed are those that mourn? Because they will be comforted. There's something he will do. So you're blessed because you receive his comfort. Otherwise, why would you be blessed if you're mourning? It doesn't make any sense. If you don't understand why he does it like that. And we've got to understand that because you need to be able to go, God is at work in my life and that's what makes me blessed. It's not because I've got money, I've got a good job, I've got this, I've got that. It's because God is at work in my life, that's what makes me blessed. And then when I bless him, and we sang that song earlier, Blessed Be Your Name, and, and, and it's great because Matt Redman has this ability to make deep theological truths into a song. And the two verses, they start like this. Blessed be your name, when the sun is shining down on me. Yeah? And then blessed be on the, your name on the mo road marked with suffering. So there's something about that, that we, we can sing that, but then if you just think about it, think, okay, blessed be your name when the sun's shining and, it's, and, uh, and that's good. And when things are difficult, blessed be your name. Oh, blessing can't be about my situation because it doesn't make sense otherwise. It can't purely be about how I feel. Because if it is, you couldn't say that. That wouldn't be true. If it was about my circumstance and my situation, my experience, blessed would not be the word I would use. Unless it was something else. It, was, it wasn't about those things, that God had another way of blessing me. So we must understand when we look at this, that blessed is about God. It's about his perspective on things. And I am blessed because of what he's doing in me and because of how he views me. I'm not blessed because of circumstance or because of experience or situations or material wealth. God may have blessed me like that, but actually that's not what it's about. You just read the story of Job. He loses all of that. And it wasn't because God didn't bless him. So then we come to this so those two things, upside down reality of the kingdom, blessed. I hope you've been able to follow those. And I'm not really clear on those things, but I hope you've been able to follow those things. And then we come to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we ask that you would speak to us. I pray for revelation in Jesus' name. Amen.
Why is the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit? Why is it blessed are those who hunger and thirst? Blessed are those who mourn. Why is it blessed are the poor in spirit? I think there are a number of reasons why the Bible puts this first, or Jesus said this first. Because to be poor in spirit is to recognise a number of things. Now, you can talk about material poverty, you know, and people talk about blessed are the poor, and in Luke it does say blessed are the poor, um, but you must understand and you must get out of your heads that this is not purely about material wealth or poverty. Yeah. Now, if you read the scriptures, it is true that God, in his sort of grace and in his love and in his heart, does have a bias towards those that have nothing. He does. But one of the reasons for that is because spiritual poverty, that recognition of, of spiritual lack, is the very way that you come to him. You know, if you became a Christian because you thought, oh, there came a point in my life when everything was going wrong in me and I just wondered what was going on. And then there was a Christian came. He said, look, you need to know Jesus. And if you come to Jesus, I went to a meeting. I went forward. I prayed and hallelujah, I'm a Christian. You're like, hold on a minute. Being a Christian, is, being a Christian that first point is the recognition that, oh, I'm a sinner. Yeah, first thing. First things first, I'm a sinner. Second thing is, and there's nothing I can do to change that. Nothing. There's no effort. There's no negotiation. Oh, let me just talk to God. You know how some people say, oh, when I see God, I'll tell him what I... No, let me just talk to him. Let's negotiate God. You know, I've got some skills here. What, what do you want me to bring? What do you want of what I have, God, to help appease this thing? No, there's nothing you can do. And if you don't ever get to that point in understanding faith, if you never get there, then you will never fully experience grace. If you don't get to the point where you recognise, oh, there is nothing I can do. Nothing. So the poor in spirit is that step of recognition that I've got nothing to bring. It's that point of brokenness. It's that point of humility. It's that point of helplessness and hopelessness. And the reason I say God has a bias towards the poor is in the very natural circumstances, if you are poor, you often have nothing to bring. You get that. You get that. Whereas in our world, do you know what? Some of you have a lot to bring. Some of you are resourceful. Some of you have got stuff. You've got gifts. You've got skills. And everyone's told you all through your life, you're skilled, you're gifted. God's got his hand on you, all those types of things. But actually, when you really come to it, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's those that recognize I've got nothing to give. And what I have, it doesn't count. Not even it doesn't count for much. And I don't mishear me. It doesn't count. It doesn't count. The reason the poor in spirit, I think, is first is because the key to the kingdom is that recognition. What I've got doesn't count. Now, don't, you know, if it all ended there, that would be really bad. Yeah? And if you thought, oh, my life... I'm not going to go, but that guy, I'm not going to. But, but it must start there. It might not end there, but it starts there. This recognition, I've got nothing to bring. The key to the door of the kingdom of heaven is the recognition I've got nothing to bring. Because it's only through that door, with that key, that you can access or even begin to understand grace, 
You don't get grace otherwise. Because grace is about you're accepted regardless of what you've done. And also, it's the recognition that, oh, it's not my efforts he's after. It's not my efforts that he's after. It all begins at the bottom. Sometimes you need to go down to get up. And also, when you recognise that, the thing it does do, which is really, really helpful for people like you and me, is it keeps me from pride. It keeps me, it protects me. When I recognise, oh, there's nothing I can bring, I am kept from pride. Because pride at its foundational level is I have something to give. And do you know what? I didn't realise how proud I was. I almost thought... God, you did well. You did well to put your hand on me, your son. You did well. I'm sure I'm the only one who's ever thought that. So the kingdom of heaven is the place where where God dwells, but it begins, we enter it through this understanding of I've got nothing to bring. I am poor in spirit. It's not to say you can't have a desire to be used and all those types of things, but before God can use you in a way that will make you fruitful in his kingdom, he needs to get you to there. You need to get to there. And just so you know, it's not just me making it up. Jesus in John 15 says this. He's talking to his disciples and one of the lines he says, it's a bit of a throwaway line, he says, apart from me, you can do, what does he say? nothing apart from me you can do nothing now I think we like to think oh yeah I know he said that but what he means is apart from me you can do nothing um, you know without my help or you, you know what I mean we can, we can just sort of qualify it a little bit and take away it, away from it because nothing it's, it's not a grey word is it it's an absolute word it's like a dead weight nothing Oh, well, can I just... And some of us, you know, we can't do nothing. Yeah? If, if you know, we're always there to help. You know, we just... I don't, can I help? No, no, you don't need to help. Oh, no, no. And then you realise, you know, let's say somebody says to you, can I help? And you go, oh, it's fine, you don't need to help. That's fine, you just sit down and relax. And they come back, well, you know, can, can I help? No, no, it's okay, you don't need to help. And then you look around again and they're helping. Yeah? And you realise... Oh yeah, you're helping and it's great, but you're helping because you need to help. That's you. (laughs) Because I've said you don't need to help. But you've insisted, no, no, but I want to help. You need, no, I need to help. Yeah, why do I need to help? For some people, not everyone, that's part of their identity. They help. So when God says, when Jesus said to his disciples, apart from me you can do nothing, I just wonder whether they shifted a little bit uncomfortably in their chairs. Not that they were on chairs. Because it's an absolute word. It's about total surrender. It's about, okay, nothing. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. And Jesus says, oh, no, you can't do anything. Okay, I can't do anything. Thanks. That's how we can respond to it. And yet, we can, in our sort of culture and our setting we come with lots of things we come with gifts and abilities and 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 insights and we when we join a church we're looking to see how can i help where can i serve where can i do stuff 
And I'm not saying don't help. <laughs> Please don't mishear me. But I am saying true fruitfulness begins with recognising you can do nothing. It's the key to the door of the kingdom, not just for your salvation, but for your sanctification, for your ongoing being changed to be more like him, there comes a point where you recognise I can do nothing. And we know the scripture says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, because you've got to get somewhere. You've got to be able to do stuff, but you do it from a very, very different place. It's where you start. 1 Peter 5 Verse 5 and 6 says this, and I'm reading the Amplified Version, which I don't do often, but occasionally it's okay. Um, Clothe, and in brackets it says apron, yourselves, all of you, with humility as the garb of a servant so that its covering cannot possibly be stripped from you. Yeah. So this idea of clothing yourselves with humility in such a way that you can't lose it. It's not false, it's real. You can't lose it. It cannot be stripped from you with freedom from pride and arrogance. So imagine that for a moment, that you can be humble in such a way that you are free from pride and arrogance. That would be a wonderful thing. Yeah, we'd all love to be there towards one another. For God sets himself against the proud, the insolent, the overbearing, the disdainful, the presumptuous, the boastful, and he opposes... He frustrates and defeats them, but gives grace, favour and blessing to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves. That is, to demote, lower yourselves in your own estimation under the mighty hand of God that in due time he may exalt you. So you don't go to nothing for no reason oh, you know, that's terrible, I've got to now be nothing. You go to nothing because it's by going to nothing that God will exalt you. But if you go to something, hear what it says, God will oppose you. If you come to God, as I know I have come to God, feeling I had something to bring, do you know what God does? He opposes you. He opposes you, he stands against you. Why? Because the key to entering the kingdom is a recognition. I'm poor in spirit. I've got nothing to bring. And if you don't get there, you can't get anywhere. It's the doorway. And here I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not talking about the unbeliever. There may well be people here who don't believe, but I'm not talking about the unbeliever. I'm talking about the believer who wants to serve. I'm talking about the Christian who wants to do stuff for God. In his economy, our efforts neutralise his grace. That's God's economy. And that's why we must understand it's an upside down reality because it's the very opposite of what we do. We value effort. We value uh, you know, people who contribute. We value when people do stuff. In our economy, that is like A star, you know, A star for effort. Okay, you've got a D for performance, A star for effort. We value it. We say to our children, okay, you might not get all the best results in the world, but as long as you try, it doesn't, you know, that's the important thing. We value it really highly. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't value it, but we must understand in God's economy, effort can be the very thing that neutralizes him. It can be the very thing that means you don't actually reach the, the place you could reach because you have run alongside, you've swam that length like I swim the breaststroke. 
And at the end, you're knackered and you think, oh man, I'm sure it's not meant to be so hard. I'm sure my arms shouldn't ache. They feel big now, but I'm sure they shouldn't ache so much through all that swimming. And we've got to get that because if we don't get that, we just carry on. I just carry on doing the breaststroke like this, never can get more than three done, thinking it's not for me because it's so much effort. And his kingdom doesn't begin with effort. It begins with brokenness. It begins with a reality check. I can't bring anything to the table. R.T. Kendall writes in his book, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. So he looks about being blessed, which is the state of being that I'm in with God. Talks about the poor in spirit, which is almost like the key to unlock the kingdom. And then when you go into the kingdom, you're in a place. And it's the place where God dwells. And you may have understood the kingdom as being That's the place where God dwells. God rules and reigns in his kingdom and that the kingdom in reality, we've got this this sort of theological understanding of it. It's now and not yet. It's not fully realised, but it has been realised on earth. And we sort of understand that because there are miracles and there are signs and there are wonders and all those types of things. And they are signs of the kingdom. But there is a bigger sign of the kingdom. There's a bigger sign of the kingdom. And that is simply this. It's the place where God dwells. God dwells completely and utterly, continuously in his kingdom. It's where he lives. It's like me hearing about you, and then it's like me coming to your home. And in your home, you're completely free. You're you. Whatever else I've heard about you, when I come to your home, I get to realise, oh, okay, he's not not like I thought he would be. This is what it's like when you come into the kingdom. It's probably not like you thought it would be because the, it's where the Holy Spirit is completely free to be who he will be. And you know what? What Artie Kendall says is, is the kingdom of heaven is the rule of the ungrieved spirit in the believer. And you know, sometimes we can grieve the spirit by our actions and, and whatever. It's the ungrieved spirit of the believer. And it's really interesting because I would say this of the Holy Spirit. And and we see this negatively, but I would say that the Holy Spirit is sensitive. It's very sensitive. You think about sensitive people, oh, you know, you've got to be careful around them. Because if you say that, they don't seem to be like, you know, just a tiptoe round, tiptoe round. That person's very, very sensitive. Yeah? Do you know what? The Holy Spirit is very, very sensitive which means you can grieve the Spirit in a moment. You can simply grieve the Spirit by by bringing your effort. Oh, today I'm going to try harder. Do you know what, when you do that, when you say that, you wake up in the morning and say, this morning, today, God, I'm going to try harder. Do you know what the Holy Spirit does? He goes, oh, oh, no, you don't need to try harder. You don't need all that effort. Yeah? Rather, better today, go... Today, Holy Spirit, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to surrender. And I'm going to listen really intently to you. I'm going to listen. Normally, I don't listen because I've got loads of ideas. Yeah? And I take my idea and I say, God, would you come and bless this idea? Yeah, I found it here somewhere. Yeah? And the Holy Spirit says, oh, if only you would listen. Because my idea is like me swimming the breaststroke. So the Holy Spirit 
in his kingdom, he's completely, he rules and he reigns. That's where he is. But he's very sensitive. But the kingdom is his promised, conscious and continual presence. (coughs) It's like you've gone to his house. Not just that he's come to you. You've gone to his house. You've gone to be with him. Jesus says a number of things which are quite important. He tells people to follow him. He then tells people to come to him, and they're different, because I can follow from a distance. But then he says come, which is all about coming a bit closer. And then he tells people to remain in him, to abide with him. And again, that's different. The levels of intimacy grows the closer you get. You can get very intimate with God. He asks you, abide with me, come to me. And yet our efforts grieve the spirit and in God's economy, effort isn't as rewarded as in our economy. There are moments, don't get me wrong, where where effort applied in the right way is exactly rewarded. But actually, when it comes to him working in your life and him making you fruitful, your efforts just get in the way. They just get in the way. They neutralise his ability to use you and make you fruitful. The kingdom of God is the place where the spirit dwells continuously and constantly. In John 15, it says this talking about abiding in the kingdom. So I open the door. I recognise I need to be broken. I come in. I surrender. I'm in now. And I'm like, oh, this is different to what I thought. The Holy Spirit's here. Very sensitive. I need to listen. I need to calm myself in order to hear him. I'm not to bring in all my stuff. I'm to wait for his stuff. This is what it says in John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Any branch in me that does not bear fruit or that stops bearing fruit, he cuts away and he cleanses and repeatedly prunes every branch that continues to bear fruit to make it bear more and richer and more excellent fruit. And then he says, you are cleansed and pruned already because of the word which I've given you. Dwell in me and I will dwell in you. Or the NIV, remain in me and I will remain in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit of itself without abiding in or being vitally united to the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. Unless you abide in me, you can't bear fruit. Abiding, and this example of of the vine and the fruit and the branches, is what it's like to be in the kingdom. To actually be in there is to abide. It's to be around his continuous presence. He remains in me and I remain in him. And that's the way to be fruitful. If I don't remain in him, I won't be fruitful. And if I don't bear fruit, I get cut off. But if I do bear fruit, he'll prune me, which means pruning is like a difficult thing because it's when you cut back and you cut back. And during the pruning process, you don't grow. Yeah, you don't grow. I mean, you will grow and be more fruitful. But when you're being pruned, you're not budding flowers everywhere. If a person does not dwell in me, he is thrown out 
like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered up and they're thrown into the fire. If you live in me and my words remain in you and continue to live in your hearts, ask whatever you will and it shall be done. So blessed are the poor in spirit is another way of saying blessed are those who are broken because in your brokenness you can abide in the continuous presence of God because that's the way in. It talks about Jesus being the vine. Let's understand this. Jesus is the vine. God the Father is the gardener, if you like. So he prunes the vine. We are the branches. You're a branch. I'm a branch. You don't look at branches and go, whoa, look at that branch. That's like amazing. Look what it's produced. All those twigs, all those apples, look at it. You don't think that. You look at a tree and go, look at, look at the tree. You recognise. It doesn't take you long to go, oh, yeah, yeah, the tree's got roots and it goes down and somewhere there's some water there. And all the work is coming up through the tree. The branch is just like, they just come out. You cut the branch, the tree will live, the branch will die. We're branches. You might not want to be a branch, but you're a branch. <laughs> I think God, I think Jesus intentionally used that example of vines and branches and fruit so that we understood, oh yeah, the vine. Yeah, that's where, that's where, that's where everything comes from. It, it comes out of the vine. And we're just branches. And we bear fruit because of the vine. We don't bear fruit because of my gifts and my skills and my personality. That's not why I bear fruit. And abiding is to be continuously in his presence. You see, some of us get confused. And again, it's a theological truth that we need to unravel in our minds. And it's this. We sometimes think to ourselves, oh, you know, life can be so tough, life can be so hard. You know, one of the reasons I go to church and one of the reasons I go to community group is I get topped up. Yeah, I go to church and God just tops me up and it's wonderful. And, and then I sort of run through the week um, and then I get to the next week and I run out of energy and I just get topped up. And then I run through the week and, um, you know, and some of us are more Duracell than others. Some of you are alkaline batteries and you're not getting, you know, in the top up. It's not lasting as long as it used to. And you're like, oh, yeah. And that's often how we think about it. We think about coming to church as almost like a top up. So if I don't get the top up, what am I going to do? What Jesus says is, remain in me and I will remain in you. And that way you'll bear fruit. Remain. Remain. It's not I run from Sunday to Sunday or Sunday to Tuesday, Tuesday <coughs> to Sunday. Yeah? I am to remain in him. And as I remain in him, I will bear fruit. I've been reading uh, the the works of Andrew Murray. You don't even know who he is. He's an old guy. He's a dead guy now, actually. He's a very, very, lived many years ago. But this is what he writes about abiding. And this is what, I'm what I've been talking about. <clears throat> the blessings he bestows are all connected with his come to me and are only to be enjoyed in close fellowship with himself. Some of us either did not fully understand or did not rightly remember that the call meant, come to me, to stay with me. Come to me, stay with me. And yet, this was in the very deed his object and purpose, 
when first he called you to himself, it was not to refresh you for a few short hours after your conversion with the joy of his love and deliverance and then to send you forth to wander in sadness and sin. He had destined you to something better than a short-lived blessedness to be enjoyed only in times of special earnestness and prayer and then to pass away as you had to return to those duties in which Father, this is very old, right? Yeah. In which far the greater part of your life has to be spent. No. He had prepared for you an abiding dwelling with himself, where your whole life and every moment of it might be spent, where the work of your daily life might be done, and where all the while you might be enjoying unbroken communion with himself. In short, God has called us, not so that there are moments where we go, oh, it's wonderful to be in his presence, isn't it great? And there are other moments where oh, I just need to get through this in order to I get back to that. He has drawn us to himself that his presence might be with us everywhere, every day, every moment. Everywhere, every day, every moment, you can enjoy the very presence of God because it's not about moments of oh come up for breath and I get a little bit of stuff and then I go down again I come up again no you are rooted in the vine even when branches are not flowering they're still living because they're rooted in the vine they're connected to the vine And so we need to get these truths because if we don't get them, the Christian life becomes too much effort. And you're not going to win on effort because you were never meant to win on effort. You were meant to win on surrender and on submission. Do you want to come up? What we're going to do, just to finish, is we're going to... We're going to have communion, share that together, or share that you and the Lord, however you want to do it. As Pauline said, there's a, there's a station here and there's one at the back. And you can just go in a moment and take and almost have that moment of recognising I'm abiding in his presence. It's not about... It's not about my efforts. It's not about my stuff. It's not about my works. It's not purely about having fresh encounters of the Holy Spirit because you can encounter the Holy Spirit all the time. Just while they're preparing the, the bread and the wine, I want to encourage you just to maybe for a moment close your eyes and just to focus on him. Uh, I've just asked the band to play through this song, very familiar. They're going to play it through. They're going to sing it through. I'm not asking us to, to, to involve ourselves with that right now, but just for a moment, just to think, just, just to pray. Different ones of us need to respond differently this morning. For some of us, we've had to be realigned in our thinking. For others of us, this is an encouragement to us to keep going. And still for others, it might be a minor, mild rebuke that we don't live with God in the way we've been living with him. We live with him in a different way. 
And so they're going to sing through this song and after they've done that the first time, I think they're going to encourage us to come forward and take the bread and the wine and to just spend a bit of time in his presence.